Welcome to Mindharma, real conversations about what really matters. Our next guest on the Mindharma podcast is Associate Professor Samuel Harvey, Chief Psychiatrist at the Black Dog Institute and Head of the Workplace Mental Health Team at the University of New South Wales. Sam is one of the world's leading workplace mental health experts. Much of the groundbreaking workplace mental health research to come from Australia in the past decade has involved Sam. His advice is sought by governments, first responder organizations and the private sector. Sam also still practices as a psychiatrist and is incredibly passionate about mental health. We're delighted that Sam can join us to share his insights and advice on creating mentally healthy workplaces. We acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their ancestors, elders and Aboriginal leaders, past, present and emerging. Hi, Sam. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Sam, you have a long history of working clinically and academically in mental health. Before that, you worked as a physician and you spent time living and working in the UK. What drew you to specialising in mental health and then workplace mental health? So I originally worked as a GP in London and there were aspects of working of a GP that I really loved, but that, you know, what I increasingly found were the most interesting patients were those with mental health problems. Yet as a GP, I had seven and a half minutes for each patient and I ended up referring all the interesting cases off to the local psychiatrist. So I ended up choosing to go back and retrain as a psychiatrist. Um, and I, I didn't intend to get into workplace mental health at all. I actually, at some point during my training, I got asked to fill in in a clinic that was an occupational mental health clinic where we used to provide mental health assessment for a range of employers, one of whom was the London Ambulance Service. And this was uh, around about the time when the London bombings happened. I was working in the clinic just after them. So I saw a lot of ambulance officers involved in that who had problems like post-traumatic stress disorder. And what really struck me was how important, obviously, these people's work experiences have been in their mental health, how important for them it was to be able to get back to their work, yet how little information I had to be working with. You know, this, this, the issue of mental ill health in the workplace is a massive issue no matter how you look at it in terms of numbers or cost, yet there was so little research going on. And I, I just sort of thought this is an area where there's so many unanswered questions. And, and so I gradually found myself doing research in it. And, um, you know, 15 years later, I'm still doing that. So I was going to say, because the, the London bombings, we're talking to, we're only talking uh, 2005, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, at that time, pretty much, all we knew about PTSD came from two places. It came from looking at civilians who were involved in a single traumatic incident, you know, the person who was involved in a car crash or something like that. And it came from military and studies of, of military deployments overseas. And, of course, both of those give us lessons about what to do with first responders, but none of them are quite the same. None of them match that sort of cumulative trauma over many years. Uh, the military comes close, but even that, you know, it's very predictable, the trauma. It's during those overseas deployments. For the first responders, it was totally different. It was every working day of their lives. 
and yeah, we just that they, they of course there'd been bits and pieces of research done, but not not enough to actually help me when I was sitting there in that clinic to know what to do and what to say to these individuals. I mean, if we look at where we are today, the impact of poor mental health is shocking on people, communities and economies. The WHO has said it's costing the global economy a trillion US dollars a year. In Australia, the Productivity Commission estimates the cost of mental ill health and suicide at up to $180 billion a year. That's nearly $500 million a day. How would you describe the response of our government and the private sector to this issue? It's a, it's a mixed report card, is the honest answer, I think. And I would probably add a third group in there that we need to give a report on, and that's mental health and, and, and mental health professionals and the way in which we handle these things. And to go through each one of them, you know, I think the government, they've now shifted from the point of, of sort of being unaware to being aware of it as an issue. And they are trying to, to sort of begin to address it with things like the Productivity Commission looking into mental health, look, thinking about workplace was a big part of that. Um, and there is work going on in Australia funded by the federal government around trying to produce some guidelines for employers. So I think... It's starting at the government level. I think mental health professionals, I think we've really dropped the ball on it. I spent six years training as a psychiatrist. And throughout that time, I didn't have a single lecture, tutorial, educational activity about workplace and the link between work and mental health. Nobody ever told me how I should go about um, assessing the role that work has had in someone's mental health or even how I go about deciding whether somebody should get, you know, how much time they need off work, what sort of work adjustments they, they should have. It's just a total blind spot. And, and so it's no surprise when people get really bad. Are, are you serious, Sam? I just find that extraordinary. Yeah, I, um, not a thing. And, and uh, to be honest, it's not just... Um, mental health, medicine in general. I mean, as I mentioned, I trained as a GP and I remember in my first week working as a GP, someone came in for a sick note and I thought, well, I, I don't even know how to begin thinking about this. It's, it's just, it's, it's something that we see as happening outside the health system. So we don't train our doctors and our psychiatrists and psychologists well enough how to deal with it. And so then when you're faced with a problem of, of where you've got, you know, someone who suffered from a mental health problem and there needs to be a sensible discussion about how we're going to modify their work, mm. the health professionals are all at sea. And then there's the workplace. And, and I think, you know, I, I, I would probably put a similar score to government there in that we've gone, we've gone past the point of them not being aware of how big an issue this is you know, a lot of the responses, and, and I think it's fair to say there's, there's a fair degree of variation between workplaces. There's some workplaces that are actually doing an amazing job. I think there's many others who still see it as something that a tokenistic effort is enough. You know, we're going to have, we're going to have a barbecue on are you okay day and then forget about mental health for the, for the rest of the year. Um, mm. And that just doesn't cut it. So I was going to say, so let's talk about the workplace. The research is very clear from organisations such as Black Dog and others that good workplace mental health drives good business outcomes. What do you think is holding organisational leaders back in implementing evidence-based strategies? Do you, think, do you think they just find this stuff too complex? I think they, you know, 
business leaders have to be able to handle complex stuff. They handle more complex stuff than this when they're making decisions. I think they're frightened by it. And, mm-hmm. and, and they're worried that they're worried firstly, that if they, if they start a program of work around worker mental health, that somehow there's an admission that there's a problem with their workplace. And, um, we know that's not the case. You know, this is there in every workplace. So doing something about it doesn't imply that you're, you're doing worse, quite the opposite. But, but I think also they, they think it's going to be a bigger, more complex problem than it needs to be. And I think they feel that the answer is that they're going to have to train a whole lot of people to be counsellors and that they're going to have to create some sort of mental health service in the workplace. And none of that's what's needed. But I think they, they sort of get confused and overwhelmed and then it becomes too difficult. I think that's a kind interpretation. I, I, I think in some places the reality is more that they're not interested enough to understand what they have to do and that they think this is something that they can just outsource and that they can pay an EAP provider to offer some counselling and they've ticked that box and so they can move on to thinking about the things that they care about more. Right. Profits over people, basically. Yeah. I mean, there's an interesting concept that a group at Adelaide was researching um, called the psychosocial safety climate, which essentially what it boils down to is when you look at the upper echelons of leadership in any organisation, where do they place the mental well-being of their workforce in their list of priorities? Um, and of course, you know, we, I, I get that they've got a responsibility to their shareholders and other people around profits and sustainability and things like that. But is worker well-being right up there with those things or, 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 or it doesn't sit well below them? And the thing is, if you go and ask a workforce, they know like that they can see through if people are not really valuing it. And if you don't have that, then all those other things fail. You know, one example was they did a study where they looked at anti-bullying policies. And if you didn't have the, the, the top tier of an organisation truly invested in worker wellbeing, if this was just sort of seen as something that they were getting other people to do, but it wasn't really their focus, it made no difference. You know, without that as the fertile ground, none of the seedlings that you plant are going to take hold in an organisation. Sam, you mentioned bullying there. Can, can you describe some of the ways that the workplace or work can cause mental ill health? Yes. I mean, it's, and, and of course, over time, what we've found is that there's all sorts of different ways, ways in which we can measure the, the link between work and mental health. So what's very clear is that the workplace influences people's mental health for good and for bad. So there's no longer an argument about that. The, 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 the question is, if, a, if someone who runs an organisation tells me, okay, tell me what are the things about a workplace that are bad for mental health? In, in a complete answer would be a list of about 25 different things that, you know, bullying, trauma, lack of control. And, and I don't think that's terribly helpful so let's, broadly speaking, there's three categories. There's one category around um, the balance of people's jobs. Uh, so, of course, in a workplace, people are asked to do things and you need to make sure you give them the resources to do that. And the same goes in terms of mental health. So 
one of the common things we look at in terms of having that balance right is about the level of control that you give people. If you're giving people a demanding job, then you need to also give them a level of control over what they're doing and how they're doing it. Um, and this is, this is something called the Caraset job demand control model. And essentially what it says is, is if your level of control is high enough, then that can, off, that can help you handle a demanding job. There's other ways to look at the balance. You can look at the balance between effort and reward. You know, there are, there are people doing incredibly difficult jobs, but if they get suitably rewarded, not just in terms of finances, but that's a big part of it, but also in terms of community recognition and, and status and things like that, then that helps enormously. There's a second big category of risk factors that is all around uncertainty. And so, you know, if you've got a workplace that's constantly changing, if you've got it downsizing, if you've got management that keep on changing things just for the sake of change without it being clear why the hell they're doing it, then that's bad for people's mental health. And of course, the most extreme example of that is something we're seeing a lot of at the moment is job insecurity, where people think they're about to lose their job or have lost their job. And for all the discussion we have about the harm that work can do to people's mental health when it's not good work, what, what, what is very clear is that having no work is almost always worse for your mental health. And, um, you know, there are a few more powerful risk factors for depression and suicide than unemployment. And then the third group of, of risk factors is really around um, respect in the workplace. And I guess bullying is, is a prototypical example of that. But there's other sorts of more subtle things around organisational justice. You know, does, does the resources and information flow in a just and fair way within an organisation? And, and, and if it doesn't, that's pretty toxic. Um, so they're the three sort of broad groups. Exactly what things fall under those groups will depend a little bit on the workplace. Sam, you're a, a psychiatrist. Can you describe the consequences for workers who suffer workplace mental health injuries? Yeah, I mean, like the reason I went into psychiatry was because it was the one illness that I saw having the most widespread influence on people and their well-being and their health. You know, there's lots of illnesses that are, most illnesses are unpleasant and have an impact on our well-being, but none quite get to the core of people in the way in which mental ill health does. So, you know, when I see people who are suffering from depression or anxiety, it is wrong to think about it as just being that they're not happy, that they the, the effects is far more reaching in terms of the impact it's having on their relationship, their, their ability to enjoy things, their ability to even think sense of, think, think straight. You know, when we see people with depression, it has an impact on their cognitive performance. When, very often you see elderly people who have been misdiagnosed with dementia, where in fact it was depression. And once you treat their depression, their cognitive performance comes back. So these are really whole body illnesses and the impact on people's lives and the ripple effect on their family is dramatic. So I, I think in a way, though, I, I think what's important to say in the same breath is that the common mental disorders that we talk about in the workplace setting, depression, anxiety, PTSD in some settings, these are treatable. And exactly the same thing that I observed as a junior doctor you know, in terms of the impact of these things on people's lives. 
What was exciting was also the impact I saw when we treated people. And actually, you know, something I think doesn't get out into the public discourse quite enough. You know, things like depression and anxiety, the treatments we have for them are by some measures more effective than the treatment that we have for cardiovascular disease and things like that. We actually have really good mm. treatments for these things. And, and we see people's lives turned around when they're able to get good quality treatment. And, and so there is nothing more distressing really for me as a clinician when I see someone who's been struggling with depression and anxiety for 5, 10, 15, 20 years and, and have never quite managed to get good quality treatment for that. And, and, and that is a reflection on our system more than the individuals, that it's so hard to get that. Can you sketch out for me the key components of a good workplace mental health strategy? Okay. So I think the first thing goes back to what we were talking about before. You've got to have the senior, organ the senior members of the organisation on board and on board in a, in a way that's clearly visible for the organisation and that stretches not just a launch event, but they're regularly demonstrating their commitment across the time course. I think then what you have to do is you've got to make sure that there's accountability in an organisation around mental health. So if there is a mental health policy, which there should be, you know, depending on the size of the organisation, um, how is that, who's taking ownership of that? You know, what is the, you know, things happen in organisations because someone's taking responsibility and accountability. It's on someone's KPI. So who is it that's doing that? What's the body in the organisation that, that's going to be judged on this? Then once you've got that framework set up, what we now know you need is there's no one magic bullet. So really what you need is you need to be thinking, okay, firstly, how can we be trying to keep our workers well? What can we be doing to prevent people becoming unwell? So that's firstly about thinking about those types of risk factors that I was mentioning before, you know, which ones are a particular issue for our organisation, how can we address them? And then secondly, are there skills that we can be teaching people to help make them more resilient to what, we're, what, what they're dealing with? And that is not, um, you know, some sort of mental health awareness campaign. That is truly teaching people new skills to make them more resilient. Then the second thing is, okay, even if we do all of that perfectly, some people are going to become unwell. Some people are going to have symptoms. Have we got the right systems in place to make it easy for them to get help when they need it? And then thirdly, if people need to take time off work to recover from their mental ill health, have we got systems and supports in place so that our workplace is part of their recovery? And if you've got that prevention, that early intervention and that recovery set, then that's a mentally healthy workplace. In order to achieve that, you really need to be doing things at multiple levels. And I think the most important level for all three of those is the level of management. And if you could only be attacking one level of the organisation, that's where it needs to happen. So it comes from the top, basically, is what you're saying, that leadership is, is, is crucial. It comes from the top, but then also, and, and again, it depends on the size of the organisation, but, you know, within large organisations, work teams almost have their own subculture. So, yes, you've got to have it from the top, but you've also got to make sure that that sort of line manager level person is, has the skills to do this. They have the skills to recognise what are the parts of the work that they're managing 
need to be modified to help protect people. They have to have the skills to be able to know how to have a conversation when they see someone struggling. We don't need to train them to be lay counsellors. We've just got to give them some really good practical skills um, that make them a good manager. Sam, what's your sense of how organisations are responding to the COVID crisis in terms of staff welfare? It's interesting. I kind of think I, I have been invited to speak to more organisations about mental health since COVID started than at any other time that I've been doing this. So I think on the one hand, people have been made aware of it. Um, and I guess that's a good first step. And I think we're still in the phase now where where, where sort of, you know, organisations are putting a lot of effort into supporting people, which is great. I guess where things are going to become more challenging is as the economic reality hits and as people start to be at risk of losing their job or being underemployed and the impact that that has on mental health. But what we're seeing in at the Black Dog Institute as a result of all of this amongst workers who come to us is, is we're seeing a couple of different categories. We're definitely seeing a group of individuals who are experiencing health anxiety you know, worried about their health, about catching COVID, about what that will mean for them and their families that haven't had mental health problems before. Uh, and of course, it's a rather unique problem because it's rational health anxiety. You know, people are right to be worried and it's how you skill them up to deal with that. The second group we're seeing is a group of people that have had grumbling problems with depression or anxiety and, and the current situation has sort of tipped them over into needing help. And you know, for some of them, it's a social isolation, that, that, that sort of the, the support they used to get from being able to go to work and have lunch with their colleagues, that that's been taken away. And for many people, that's a major issue. Uh, for others, it is the job insecurity. Then I think thirdly, there is a group of workplaces which we wouldn't have previously talked about as being sort of frontline workers in the way in which we were talking about paramedics earlier and things like that. And this is, you know, we've had... For example, bank workers who have come to us and said, you know what, I never used to feel scared about going to work. I knew there was a risk of an armed holdup, but we had procedures in place. Now I'm going there and every, every customer I'm worried, uh, have they got COVID? Um, we've had teachers mm -hmm. who have said, why are we having to go back to work when everyone else isn't? Why are we being allowed to put in harm's way? And so I think uh, there's a whole lot of things that we have learnt from groups like first responders that we're now having to use in some of those other occupations. Do you think that this is a, that COVID is offering organisations, offering leaders a, a chance to actually, for the first time, to really make the mental health of their workforces a strategic priority? I hope so, because I think what it has shown us, it, it, it's given people a way to start the conversation. You know, that thing earlier where we were saying that, you know, some some leaders were worried that if they start a conversation about mental health, what does that say about them and their organisation? That's not an issue now. You know, everyone's talking about this. So I think it's a great way for organisations to be able to start the conversation, provided it keeps on going. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just talking about first responders, uh, you've led a, a large number of trials in nearly a, a decade at Black Dog Institute in the University of New South Wales that have focused on the development of evidence-based interventions in the workplace for these high-risk occupations, uh, ambulance, fire and rescue, police and, and, and healthcare workers. Can you share some of your insights on this work? Yeah, because I think, and, and as I said before, you know, I think we're now 
we're able to use what we've learned from those groups for other groups of workers as well. I think there's maybe, I think there's four real take-home messages that we're getting from the research. One is that just because something's a good idea, seems like a good idea, doesn't mean it's helpful. And, and if you look over the history of what's happened with first responders over the last few decades, there have been lots of things tried that seemed like a good idea that actually really didn't help. And um, so it, it's critical that organisations know that if they're rolling stuff out, either there's good evidence that shows that it works or they're going to be gathering evidence to see if it works within their organisation. I, I think the second thing we've learned is just how important leadership is, um, both, both leadership of the whole organisations but leadership of teams. If you look at any of these high-risk workforces after these major incidents, the major predictor of, of mental health outcomes is around the quality of that immediate leadership. You know, the team leader that was there on the day, were, did they do good leadership? Did, did they lead that sort of response afterwards? So that's why they're the crucial cog in the wheel, I think, in terms of upskilling. The third thing is that, and, and, and you know, this might this is a bit of a blow to the ego of, of mental health professionals like myself, is that it seems we're not quite as effective as we thought. And that actually, if you want to go in and train a workforce or go in and support a workforce after something happened, in, by and large, don't bother sending in a psychiatrist or a psychologist. You, it, it's the peers that do that well. So within the fire service, within the police, we chain up other officers to be the ones who can lead that response, who can do some of the basic mental health training because they listen to them, they don't listen to me. Um, and then fourthly, I think we are learning now that you can teach people skills that make them more resilient. But two, two caveats with that. Firstly, you can't do it in a single session. So if someone's trying to flog resilience training and they say that all they need is, is sort of like a half-day session, then that's nonsense. You can't teach these things in that time. It has to be an ongoing process. Secondly, it's got to be skills training. There's no point sending people away for a couple of days just to learn about the difference between depression and anxiety. That's not what they need. What they need is those practical skills. Um, so I think they're the four lessons, and, and I think they're relevant for just about any organisation. Just changing tack for a moment, Sam, I have heard you described as one of the busiest folks at the Black Dog Institute. Um, you've got a lot of projects on the go. You're the father of two kids, keen golfer, a fan of the AFL, and, and you and I were just talking about the cricket last night before we started this podcast. How do you manage the stress in your life and maintain a balance? Yeah, I... I... There's a couple of things, I guess. I mean, I'm, I'm lucky because I love the work that I do. And, and so, but I haven't always. You know, I wasn't happy when I was a GP. And I think I was, I was lucky in that I had the control to be able to change and to do something. And if you do something you love, then it's, it, it makes, that deals with a lot of the problems. I, I think I have, over time, tried to learn some skills about coping. And I do find mindfulness skills to be particularly useful um, and you know there are lots of very senior people that use mindfulness to great effect I'm not terribly good at sitting still while I do it so increasingly I try and incorporate it into things I do when I go for a walk or when I play golf I think thirdly like 
I, I think I've learned over time to prioritize the things that make me happy and feel good. So no matter how busy things are at work, I always stop work at six o'clock and I go and spend time with my kids. Um, I always make sure I, I try and go for a walk at lunch, those sort of things. And I've come to see them as really an important part of what keeps me functioning well at work. And, and so I feel less selfish about doing it. And, you know, you've only got a certain number of hours in the day. And sometimes you've got to think about what you want to be spending them doing and what help keeps you, what, what, what it is that help keeps you well in that balance. That's great, Sam. I think that's a good, good place for us to finish up there. Thank you so much for uh, sharing your, your insights into this really important topic today. No problems. Thanks for having me. And um, yeah, thanks for your interest in the work we're doing. Pleasure. The Mindama podcast shares stories of personal resilience and mental health. If you are impacted by any of the stories shared in the podcast, please consider reaching out for support. In Australia, you may choose to call Lifeline on 13 11 14. If you are living outside of Australia, please visit befrienders.org for support services in your country. Thank you for joining us on the Mindama podcast. We invite you to discover even more with the Mindama e-learning program. Mindama is an award-winning program being used by thousands of workers as they take on some of the world's most challenging roles. Learn more about your brain. Unwind with relaxing guided mindfulness exercises and discover simple, practical skills you can use whenever the going gets tough. Find out more at mindama.com. Purchase online, or better still, ask your boss about bringing Mindama into your workplace.